0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. My name is Elizabeth McNulty. Today, I am with Megan Crowe, Liz Lenovey, and we are honored to have a guest, Ellen or Ellie Krug. Just to give a little bit of background, at the age of 52, Ellie Krug transitioned from male to female while living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Although not at all easy, transitioning genders gave Ellie the opportunity for a do-over in life, which has included working to make the world fairer and more inclusive for all humans, particularly those considered other. With over 100 civil trials to her credit, Ellie was the first Iowa lawyer to ever transition genders and one of the few attorneys nationally to try jury cases in separate genders. She later relocated to the Twin Cities, where she served as the founding executive director of a legal nonprofit that was conferred an American Bar Association Award for innovatively increasing legal access. The author of Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change, Ellie has presented on diversity and inclusion to governmental entities, court systems, Fortune 100 companies, law firms, nonprofits, and college universities on 800 plus occasions. A hopeless idealist, Ellie has presented her human inclusivity training, Gray Area Thinking, across North America. In 2016, Advocate Magazine named Ellie one of 25 legal advocates fighting for trans rights. She is a monthly columnist for Lavender Magazine and pins a wildly circulated monthly e-newsletter, The Ripple, that reaches 9,000 readers. Ellie views herself as an inclusionist and founded an inclusion-oriented consulting and training company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC, in 2016. In 2019, the Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal conferred its 2019 Business of Pride Career Achievement Award to Ellie and her company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. In that same year, Outfront Minnesota, the state's largest LGBTQ advocacy organization, conferred Ellie its 2019 Legacy Award. Ellie is also a weekly radio and podcast host. Her show Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 in the Twin Cities with more than 100 episodes highlights idealism and how each of us can play a role in fostering positive change in the world. So obviously Ellie is incredibly busy. So thank you for joining us today. We are so happy to have you on.
2: Thanks so very much. I'm really thrilled to be here. I really appreciate talking to you.
0: I think I can speak for all of us that we were so excited to host this interview. Just a little bit of backstory. Ellie was actually a presenter at our legal services seminar back in June, and she covered the really important diversity and inclusion ethics hour that we all require now in order to keep up with our CLEs. And after watching her presentation, she was only there for an hour, but it was so dynamic and so interesting. And the way you included the audience, as soon as it was over, we all pretty much looked at each other and said, we got to have her on the show. We got to have her. And so, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. And I think a good place to start would be is if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story and and how you found yourself in law school and becoming a lawyer and the practice leading up to where you are now.
2: Okay. And we only have like less than an hour, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I guess uh, the Reader's Digest version is I grew up in a blue collar family. We had in the outer part of the family, we had a, a lawyer, but For the most part, I grew up with parents who never went to college and other people in my family who never went to college. But I started reading the newspaper when I was about seven years old. And at that time, Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, they were alive and they were working to change the world. Their words sank into me. And there was something about them particularly about bobby kennedy and he was a lawyer that just grabbed me and told me that i have an obligation to make this world a better place and so like by the time i was 11 12 years old i mean i was 11 years old when they were, both of the men were murdered i mean they were murdered within two months of each other i decided to be a lawyer when i was 11 or 12 and that was like a steadfast goal i mean I never wavered ever from that. And it oriented everything I did because I knew that if I got in trouble, you know, with the law or something like that, that that would kibosh my ability to go to college and go to law school, particularly to go to law school. I lived this life where I worked very hard. I saved money to go to college. Once I was in college, I worked my tail off to get as good a grades, as close to a 4.0 straight through college as possible. I'm not very good at taking uh, standardized tests. And I knew that I would bomb the LSAT. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. But somehow I got into Boston College Law School. I went out there and, and was able to get a really high quality education. It was a Jesuit school, so there was some orientation about social justice associated with my law education. And then I was set to go out and change the world. And then two things happened. One. I found out during my second summer, I clerked in Cleveland, Ohio, and at that time, outside of New York, Cleveland paid the most money for summer associates across the country. And so for the very first time, I was earning money that I had no idea that I could ever earn as a lawyer. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And so I got caught up in earning money. The second thing that happened is that I had these issues around gender. As everybody's hearing right now, it's a man's voice, but for the longest time, again, going back to about the time I was 11 years old, there was this stuff inside my head. It was fuzzy at first and I didn't understand it. But by the time I got out of law school, it was pretty clear. I knew that I had something very serious going on about gender and that in all likelihood, I was really not a dude, really a woman. And at that time, I also had same-sex attraction, so I was getting attracted to dudes. And so I started to suppress my identity in a very, very big way. I was married. I had married my high school sweetheart. She was my soulmate. Oh, let me just tell you, she was my soulmate. And I loved her with all of my heart. And, you know, this was in the mid 80s. All this stuff is happening. And I just had to suppress my identity. I just was like impossible to think that I could do anything about it. And so those two things drove me and my legal career for almost 30 years. And eventually I ended up, I practiced five years, learned how to cut my teeth in trial work in downtown Boston in federal court, I had a brilliant, brilliant mentor who only knew how to ask leading questions. So right away, <laughs> as a second chair, he had me doing all the directs. I'm not kidding. you know. I mean, I'm, I'm one year out of law school doing directs, including of experts. He was brilliant. And I learned how to be a fairly good trial lawyer as a result. Went back to Iowa, where I grew up with my wife at that time, and eventually ended up forming my own law practice in Cedar Rapids. Around transportation law, I represented railroads and uh, trucking companies, primarily, but I did other work as well, and then eventually, though, however, my suppression of my gender identity didn't it didn't work, and I have a saying that human authenticity will not leave you alone until you listen to it, and uh, frankly, it didn't leave me alone at all until I listened to it. So I transitioned genders in uh, 2009, became the first Iowa lawyer to do that. And within a couple of months of that, I tried a jury case as Ellen Krug. We told the jury that I was um, transgender. We got the jury to swear that they wouldn't hold it against my clients. I didn't want them thinking not only were my clients frauds, but that their lawyer was a fraud. And uh, we successfully got the jury to promise that they wouldn't hold me against my clients. And wouldn't you know, four days later, a jury came back in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, my client's favor. So I thought that my law firm would survive. I thought that I would be able to continue to practice law. But eventually, my clients got afraid. I had high, high exposure cases. We're talking the last big case I had, the demand was $32 million for a man who had been horribly injured in a rail car accident. So my clients just were like, they didn't want to take a risk with me. And uh, I, 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 I lost my practice. Not all of my transportation clients wanted me to quit, but it just, it wasn't going to work. So I ended up leaving uh, Cedar Rapids and moved to the Twin Cities and started all over again. So I know that was a long answer. Didn't you just ask my name? Wasn't that it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was a great answer. And Ellie, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And you have lived such an incredible life that, you know, I think that that was such a loaded question to to start with about just tell us about yourself when there's so much information and life that you've lived. But I will say I was actually thinking about you the past two and a half weeks. I just got out of a trial down in a rural county down in the boot heel of Missouri. And I was thinking about when I was sitting there, how much privilege I have just by not having to worry about the jury judging me based on my my gender identity and how I was born. And so I I was thinking about you when I was down there this week, especially now that you have put that story into context about it wasn't a a choice that you made, but one that clients who were closed-minded and who were scared of jurors being closed-minded, that choice was sort of thrust upon you as opposed to you getting to make that choice. But you have done such an incredible job of taking what happened to you and turning it into such a wonderful thing, which is your opportunity to write and present and educate others on inclusiveness and accepting people. And so if you could, I think you sort of left off your answer about what you have been doing so much since then as as a writer and as a presenter. And so could you tell our listeners and tell us more about what your career looks like now? What does a regular day in the life of Ellie Krug look like?
2: Well, so first of all, I really am quite neurotic about my voice. So your listeners right now are probably picturing a somebody who's six foot two, 225 and fighting a four o'clock shadow with this voice. And I just need to make sure that everyone understands I'm about five foot eight, uh, depending on which store, a size four or a size six with still relatively blonde hair, although, you know, Kara, my stylist, helps with that, (laughs) and not in bad shape. And so for me, and in response to the question, for me, everything gets oriented around the fact that I am other in our society because of my voice. Now, I have done what trial lawyers have been taught to do, which is we make lemonade out of lemons, right? Right we always get bad facts, right? And we're taught, don't hide them, deal with them right up front. Talk about them at the beginning of the case, you know, get the jury to understand that, okay, maybe you're going to hear this, but you know, hold on a second, there's something else. And so along with that, I've gotten a do-over. I mean, I am one of those people that got a chance to literally change my life and I think for the most part, I've not squandered it. I've taken advantage of it. And lastly, and then I'll really get to the answer you remember I talked about being that idealistic kid that Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy spoke to? Well, when everything fell apart with the firm, I did make a conscious decision. I could have rebuilt the firm, and I have no doubt that I would have been able to rebuild it. But I was done. I was done doing that. I did defense work. I made a lot of people cry in courtrooms. You know, I was a good, aggressive lawyer. That's why railroads really wanted me. (laughs) I was done being an aggressive lawyer, attack dog lawyer. What I really am is a soft and gentle and kind human. I really am who wants to make the world a better place. And so when it fell apart, I said, Ellie, you're done doing the trial work. You're going to be that idealist that you set out to be so long ago when you went into law school. And so, you know, um, I came to Minneapolis where no one knew me. That was very important because even though the voice doesn't match the appearance, at least no one knew what my old name was. And they had never seen me as a man. So, it was easier for them to say Ellie and hopefully easier to use the proper female pronouns. But I got lucky and I got hired to start a legal access nonprofit. A bunch of cisgender, white color people, you know, who had no idea they were straight folks, had no idea about transgender people, but they took a risk on me and they hired me to start a legal access nonprofit that had half a million dollars already devoted to it in the bank, literally in the bank. And I began this nonprofit from scratch. Within three years, we won an American Bar Association Award for innovatively increasing legal access. We were like a legal navigator, helping low-income people figure out how they could get legal access, get to legal resources. But along the way, as soon as I transitioned genders in 2009, people were coming to me because even though 2009 is 12 years ago, for the transgender community, it's like 75 years ago in terms of acceptance and so people came to me back in 2009 like what is a transgender come talk to us and eventually there were so many requests for that I created a formal transgender 101 program but along the way it became clear to me that people were hungry not to just learn about how to be welcoming to trans people but to how to be welcoming to anybody who is different or other and so that was the program that you saw gray area thinking That I developed. I think I've given that talk maybe 500, maybe close to 600 times. And it's about general human inclusivity, about how to get past how we group and label people. And then we attach things to those grouping and labelings. And again, we're back to using lemonade because I use my voice as a tool. You may recall from the training that, you know, people react to the voice. I can literally see it on the screen or when we do it live in the room. They give me a look because their brain isn't reacting quickly enough to the fact that their eyes are telling one thing, but then their ears are telling them something else. But in the end, people adjust to my voice. Not everyone, but most people do. And it's that adjustment. It's that process of going from, oh, this is weird to, oh, you know what? I kind of like her. And she's really, really like me. It is that process, that change of perspective, that that is how we change the world. We will never change the world ever by ordering people to think differently. The only way we will change the world is by inspiring people to be willing, to be willing to change their perspective and then to hold that changed perspective. So that's what I do now. I help people see the world differently.
3: So Ellie, I know you just talked about this a little bit, and this was something that really struck me as very powerful about your presentation that you gave, is the contrast between your appearance and your voice. And you mentioned it at the outset of your presentation. You mentioned that it's probably more noticeable. And then by the end of this, just an hour-long talk of active listening and engaging with someone who is different than you and by the end of it you raise the issue again whether it strikes someone that there's this contrast between your voice and appearance and I think it dropped dramatically and I really loved that part of your presentation Um, it struck out to me so I was hoping now you could talk a little bit more about some of the other themes of your presentation maybe how you developed it and what the goals of this presentation is.
2: So the training gray area thinking is, you know, my work, although there are a couple of things I've grabbed from other people with permission that are in the training, but the training is a tool set on how to be welcoming to anyone who is different or other, and we can make anyone different or other. I mean, we humans make everybody other generally in one way or another, but i create a tool set. It has four modules. The first is how we group and label other people. I don't like to use the phrase unconscious bias, because it causes people to react emotionally. So let's just get past that and talk about what bias causes us do, which bias causes us to group and label humans. So first is about how we group and label others. The second is about how we group and label ourselves because underlying the training is the theme, the idea that we're all attempting, all of us, each of us. I don't care what color of skin you are, what gender, how you identify, or what disability status you have. All of us are attempting to survive the human condition some have greater challenges than others for sure but all of us are attempting to survive it and so we group and label ourselves though in ways that cause us to suffer as we're trying to do that survival and then the third module is the actual tool set of gray area thinking and the last module are the three levels of human inclusivity how humans particularly in the legal profession i mean i have a special training for legal profession and then i have one just for like ordinary regular humans Many people understand diversity, but they don't understand inclusivity. Diversity is the question of how many people, how many of them, quotation marks around that phrase, are in the room with us, more quotation marks. Inclusivity is the extent to which humans feel as if they matter. The legal profession, as a rule, for the most part, gets diversity. I mean, they understand at least what the concept is. And partly, well, mainly that's because we as humans can see it. You know, we gravitate to what we can see skin color, gender, maybe visible disability status, the legal profession, for the most part, doesn't get inclusivity. They don't get what it means to make people feel as if they matter. And then what happens with the profession generally is it works very hard to bring in diverse attorneys or support colleagues. It's a crisis-driven business profession. We're always going from one thing to another. We always take on too much. We just do that. And so then we don't have the time to get to know people. Lastly, I would just say the only pathway through other, the only pathway past othering of humans is human familiarity, becoming familiar with another human. And that's really what the training is. You start out with me as other, when you hear my voice, contrast to my appearance. But by the time we're done with the training, you've become familiar with me. And all of the barriers, that kept me as other start to fade away. I happen to believe that human familiarity is the only pathway for us to get through all the crap that we're going through right now. And boy, let me just tell you, I mean, I don't even think I need to define what the crap is. I think listeners will readily understand that as soon as I said the phrase.
3: And, you know, Ellie, even though podcast, by nature is an audio only format, I still think this conversation is allowing our listeners to get familiar with you. And even without the visual component is still dropping away those barriers.
2: Thank you. Thanks. I would I would like to hope so. Thanks.
1: Well, I think that we've mentioned this already, but we really, really enjoyed your presentation on gray area thinking, and we all learned a lot from it. I think that we got a lot of great feedback on the other uh, lawyers that were at the CLE. I'm just curious um, what kind of feedback you usually get, if you have any good stories of people learning a lot from you or anything you'd like to share.
2: Oh, my goodness. You know, over on the other end of my desk right now is an evaluation I got from doing gray area thinking for I think it was a company, last month. And, you know, one of the remarks, I mean, and I don't want to be braggadocious, but one of the remarks was, Elie Krug should be president of the United States.
0: (laughs) Krug 2024. (laughs)
2: Uh, Again, I don't like to be braggadocious, but I am repeatedly told that my work has changed people that it's changed the way that they are. Now, you may recall from Gray Area Thinking, I also say this in other talks I give, that I I say that 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts. I mean, 2%, total sociopath. But the other 98% (laughs) are good people. And I mean that, I do. It's just that many of us aren't paying attention on how to exercise our empathetic hearts or we're scared to death to exercise them. But when we do exercise, when we're given a pathway on how to exercise our empathetic hearts, we show up in droves. So you may recall we did the exercise. I asked how many of you here have ever you know, given through GoFundMe or Facebook FundMe or some other online funding mechanism to help a stranger or maybe someone you knew. And I am running with that question somewhere between 50 and 100% of my attendees have done that. And that's not random it's because we have good empathetic hearts. But to give you a very quick story, I about two months ago, some random stranger who had gone to one of my trainings sent me a screenshot from their computer. And they said that they had been on some other talk, okay? And somebody spoke up on that other talk in a way that you could see their view of the computer. Maybe it was the trainer. I don't know who it was. This person wanted to send me the screenshot because they said, Ellie, look at this. Look at what this person wrote down. And on the bottom, on a sticky note, at the bottom of the screen were these words, Ellie Krug, dash, almost all humans have good hearts. And I don't even know who the person was that had the note. But when I saw that, what it said to me is, Ellie, your words are rippling. Your heart is rippling to others. And that is what we need. We need to have compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. And we need to have that compassion and empathy ripple, ripple from one person to another person, to another person, another person. And once we get that rippling, it builds But we have to be willing to do the work. And the work is getting past our fear of other, taking risks to engage with people who are different from us. And be willing for things to be bumpy and uncomfortable. Oh my God. What am I going to say? What if this conversation kind of goes left field? You know, or I don't know if I want to go into that part of town to have that conversation. I don't know. What if something happens? But if we can get brave and get past all of those fears and then we show up and we sit in rooms with people who are different from us, do you know what happens? We find out they are just like Us. They are. And that is what my work is about. Reminding humans that we can do this.
3: I know during the end of your presentation, you put up some poll questions and you can explain this a little bit better to our listeners than I can. But I think the purpose of the polls was to see what Things our minds differ on. And then, kind of the last question was something that kind of pulled everyone together in that we all wanted to be remembered for being good people. I think I might be misremembering it, but if you could explain that maybe a little bit better.
2: So, the second uh, module of the Gray Area Thinking, as I said previously, is about how we group and label ourselves, how we put ourselves into categories and sometimes suffer as, as a result. And so, you know, the second module. When it's live, you know, I come and I hang 19 different signs on the wall and I get everybody up and then I give them prompts and say, go stand by the sign that is responsive to the prompt for you. When it's online, we use polling and there are five polls. The very first poll is the identity that my parents or parental figures stressed for me as I was growing up was, and people have a number of different choices, education, religion, family, Socioeconomic class, but usually with that poll, family is the one that most people choose because people, I think, consistently believe that education is your ticket to success. The second poll is the identity that garners or gives me the most privilege. Thankfully, as time has gone on, as I've done this training, more and more people are picking skin color as, you know, because a lot of my attendees are. White in skin color, you know. So skin color is picked. The third poll is the identity that others use as a reason to judge or discriminate or group and label me. And on that, we have a lot of people, particularly in the legal profession, but also across the board of all sectors, because I train, you know, Fortune 100 companies, government entities, nonprofits, you know, you name it. And when we get to the question, the identity that others use as a reason to judge or discriminate against me, gender is usually the highest. And it's usually because it's women, although sometimes men pick that answer, but usually it's women. And so women in our society continue, continue to be marginalized, notwithstanding all the progress that women have made and all of the challenges that they continue to have. The fourth pole is the identity I struggle with the most on a day-to-day basis. And, and I run somewhere between a quarter and half the room, pick one choice in particular. And that choice is not good enough slash failure. But a quarter to half the people in the room, and usually it's not people don't think they're a failure. They just think that they're not good enough. And it's particularly high in the legal profession. When I trained the state of Iowa judiciary at 160 judges and Supreme Court justices, this was back when it was live. Out of 160, 40 of them, 40 judges and Supreme Court justices stood under the sign that said not good enough slash failure. When asked the identity I struggle with the most on a day-to-day basis. Think about that. The top of the legal pyramid, and you have people, the people that are at the top, that are the successes above success, saying they don't think they're good enough. And I said to them then, if you think this, can you imagine what the people who come before you think of themselves? And the last question on that poll is the identity I want to be known for is. And I am thrilled to report that across all sectors, I don't care big town, small town, blue town, red town, Bernie town, big company, small company. I don't care where I go in response to the question, the identity I want to be known for is. The vast, vast majority of people pick one one answer. And that answer is compassion. People don't want to be known for skin color or socioeconomic class. They rarely even want to be known for education. They want to be known for compassion or family. And family is about compassion. Family used to be about blood, but now it's about affinity. I've been best friends since eighth grade with with the guy that was the eighth grade quarterback. I was the frontline guard. And everyone in his family, gets a ring, special ring. It's the Thap ring. And you know who else gets to wear the Thap ring? Me. His daughter is coming to visit me actually tomorrow. I call her my third daughter. Her name is Nisty. She's gonna to come to see me because she considers me her aunt. And I tell you this, and I'm really thrilled you asked this question because I have this rare and I think fairly unique window into America and the world and because some of my trainings are international. I mean, right now, remember the crap that I just talked about. Remember all the stuff that we're going through, right? Remember how we go on Twitter right now and all we will if you just be on Twitter for five minutes, it looks like all we do is hate each other. And the reality is I am finding wherever I go. Now remember, these are people, most of whom have never ever met a transgender person in real life. And yet they are allowing themselves to be vulnerable with me. They're allowing me to ask them questions that they're never asked by anyone else. And then when we get to the question, what do you want? What do you want for your legacy? They don't want to be known for the money they made or even the religion they practice. They want to be known as people who care about other people. I am like the canary in the coal mine, except for the twist. I am alive and breathing and thriving. I'm not dying. And I have to tell you, and I'm thrilled that I'm here. It is so frustrating because I see this window into us as humans. And no one else gets to see it. No one else gets to find that Really, we care about each other far more than we believe based on social media or TV. Sorry, I get very passionate about this, as you can hear it in my voice. And I hope I'm not taking your podcast in a direction you didn't want.
0: (laughs) I think the passion is certainly notable in your voice, but that's why you're so good at what you do. You clearly care and you want others to be better and you want to educate folks so that they can have the tools in order to not just be diverse but to be inclusive and it goes back to what you were talking about the human condition and we're all just trying to survive it and everything that goes along with that and that we can all be so much better if we can recognize the similarities we have and of course still celebrate the differences and appreciate the differences but at the end of the day recognizing that we're all people So, Ellie, we are so thrilled that you were able to join us on the podcast. You have such a cool perspective, and you're such a badass woman. And so, Ellie, we're coming up to the end of our hour together, and I want to make sure you have an opportunity to answer this as fully and completely as you can. But what can we as cisgender attorneys or straight attorneys do to make sure that we have a welcoming and inclusive Environment where our trans colleagues or any of our colleagues that fall under that LGBTQIA banner feel safe and welcome and that they can thrive in our offices? What what advice would you give to folks like us who have that privilege?
2: That's a long uh, answer that I could give you, but generally, as it specifically relates to trans and non binary people, the use of pronouns is the most important thing. I mean, if you use she, her, hers, my pronouns with me, towards me. I mean, it lets me at least know that you see me as who I am. You know, and I'm not looking for you to celebrate, you know, pop champagne, okay, in doing that. I'm just looking for you to give me the basic respect that you would give to anybody, okay, to any other woman. But, you know, I have a saying that pronouns can be weapons or they can be gifts. And sometimes pronouns are used as weapons, as a way to kind of remind you that you don't fit in and, you know, I'm not going to accept you. So pronouns are very, very important. And the other thing is just to see trans and non-binary people as humans. Yeah, maybe some of us don't, you know, pass entirely for either male or female, you know, because of body structure or voice or something like that and or we come from a background or maybe we transitioned on the job and you used to know us as John and now we're, you know, Judy. See us as humans who have taken a journey and struggled a great deal with trying to understand who we are. In the end, whether you're trans or cis or whatever, we're all trying to do that. We're all trying to live lives authentically. And remember, eight hours ago when we began this, I said, (laughs) human authenticity won't leave you alone until you listen to it. And that is true about gender or sexual identity, but it's true for all kinds of other things. Some people are writers. You have to write. And somebody takes the time away from you to write or says, no more writing. Some people would suffer greatly some of us are musicians, some of us are singers, some of us are crafters, some of us are hikers, some of us are fisher people, some of us are helpers. All of those things go into making us feel whole as humans. And so it's important to understand that human authenticity is not a choice. However, it shows up in you. And if you deprive someone of their authenticity, they will suffer greatly. In some cases, they will suffer terminally if you don't allow people to live authentically. And to understand it's not a choice. I mean, I think the the biggest hurdle that trans and non-binary people face, and then of course with lesbian, gay, and bisexual people to a certain degree, um, is that people believe it's a choice. Oh, you don't have to be that way. It's not a choice. It's not. <laughs> I tried with all my might and all the suppression I could muster to stay a man. I did not want to transition genders. I loved my wife. I knew that I would lose her. I had a very successful law practice. I knew I would lose that. I had a daughter that I knew that I would lose if I transitioned. I tried really, really hard to stay a dude. But I learned that in life, some things are just the way they have to be. And I really am a chick. That's all. So by the way, the daughter came back. (laughs) She was gone for four years, but she came back and she is now one of my biggest supporters and protectors.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of that and and sharing your perspective. I feel like I've learned so much and that I'm going to take this conversation with me in my future interactions with folks, especially the trans community. I'd love to meet more people and to hear their stories as well. So again, Ellie, thank you so, so, so much.
2: Listeners, I do have a memoir out there. Uh, The title is uh, Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change. It's available on Amazon Kindle Nook. But if you're really interested, why don't you get your local bookstore to order it and give the local bookstore some business. I also have a monthly newsletter that goes out to 9,000 plus people. It's titled The Ripple. It's named after one of Robert Kennedy's most famous speeches of all time, The Ripple of Hope Speech. The newsletter is about inclusivity, about how we can be good to each other. I share stories of how humans are good to each other. And so uh, if you want to find more about me or sign up for the newsletter, you can go to my website at Ellie Krug, E-L-L-I-E-K-R-U-G dot com. I would love to have you become a subscriber and certainly feel free to reach out to me. I give talks across the country to the legal profession and to other entities. Thanks for letting me do that. I appreciate that.
1: Thank you again, Ellie, for joining us today in this special episode. I think it's safe to say that the child in you would be really happy and proud to know that you are certainly making the world a better place. And again, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is actually the last episode of season three, but don't worry, we will be back for season four starting next week. So we will still be dropping episodes every Wednesday, and we hope to bring you some really exciting content in our upcoming episodes. So if you have any suggestions, Suggestions for things you'd like to see in season four? Feel free to drop us a line at comments at heelsinthecourtroom. law. Thanks, and see you next time.
0: Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom. and
3: subscribe today.